Hey, what's going on? I'm Jeremy Lee, and you are listening to the 20th episode of Reading the Play. We're here, episode 20, the show where athletes share their story and experiences about life and sports. Additionally, we break down some key decisions they made so that you can get a better understanding of their journey and where they are today. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you can hear other great stories by athletes, and you can also find them on sportcalgary.ca. For the latest news, including new episodes, follow on Instagram at Reading the Play or myself at Legacy. In this episode, we switch tracks and slide into the world of bobsleigh as Canadian Olympic bobsledder Melissa Lotolz joins me on Story Island. One of the most reflective people I know, Melissa provides some great insight on her journey trading in the summer track for a winter one. We also get her to break down her transition from brakeman to bobsled pilot, plus she shares her experience from her first ever Olympic Games in Pyeongchang in 2018. Well, looks like Melissa's all worn up on the hot seat. Let's get it. Story Island taking a bit of a different turn today as we have our first professional bobsledder on the show. Melissa, great to have you on. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Being a professional tobogganer, (laughs) do you evaluate how people participate in the sport of tobogganing now? Even the casual people? (laughs) Do you look at the, the activity from a different viewpoint? Yes and no. I mean, like... At the end of the day, I think for me, watching other people toboggan, it reminds me of like what the essence of my sport is. It's about having fun. Uh, But at Christmas, actually, we were out on the tobogganing hill with my cousin's kids and (laughs) we did did some different bobsled starts. We did the classic bob, actually. That's how bobsled got its name, was people sitting in a sled and bobbing to get it going before sprinting and pushing the sled became a thing. Not very efficient, though. No, not not very at all. So yeah, no, it's, it's fun to get to watch people do it. And I think it's a really good relating point because not everybody goes bobsledding, but who in Canada hasn't gone tobogganing? That's right. Yeah. But you're not like, oh, this person shouldn't be pushing this way because they're going to throw out their back. <laughs> I suppose you never want to get injured, but no, I'm not analyzing technique on the tobogganing hill. <laughs> so right now you're currently in your off season. Mm-hmm. What are you looking forward to the most? I think now that I've had I've had a couple of weeks off, I'm about we're three weeks post World Champs, and so I'm looking forward to getting back into routine. It, it's nice at the beginning, and you get to relax and work on other things and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, I really do enjoy that routine of working out and pushing myself. So I'm excited to get back in the gym and back on the track. Well, because your norm is just so structured, right? It is. It's actually it's so weird going from like at World Championships where it's especially like the height of that, and so you. You wake up and you you know what your goals are, you know what your purpose is, and you have a schedule of like when to eat, when to go to the track, all that kind of stuff. And then you wake up the day after World Champs and you're like, I can do anything. What do I do with myself? And eat anything? (laughs) And eat anything. (laughs) It's freeing. Yeah. So it's fun for a while, but then after, it's also overwhelming because... I think we're so used to, as athletes, we're so goal-structured and so goal-orientated. It's fun to have a break, and we need it, for sure. But I think we're athletes at this level because we love pushing ourselves and we love chasing down those goals. So I I like having those small micro-goals, whether it's, you know, in the gym, I want to do this today kind of thing. So I'm looking forward to that piece of it. So let's rewind a little bit and go back to where your journey all began, up in Barhead, Alberta. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, a small town girl, born and raised, and grew up on the family farm. And uh, it's been in the family for ooh, 80, 80 to 90 years already. My great-grandpa homesteaded it. So That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> we actually, uh, prior to the Olympics, CBC came out and we did like a hometown feature and stuff like that. So they were out on the farm with us and uh, got some footage and also got some footage of the hometown derby and stuff like that. So it was a lot of fun. What kind of sports did you play growing up as a kid? Or were you just mostly helping out on the farm and that was your form of exercise? I would say both of those things for sure. Uh, I think growing up on the farm, I learned, I guess you could say my physical literacy just like by doing stuff on the farm and challenging my body in different ways. So whether that was, you know, helping out plant the garden or helping out clean out the barn or something like that. Um, Or me and my sister, we loved like... We were outside all the time. If it was winter, we literally had like the porch light on so we could go tobogganing behind the house until dinner. And if it was summer, we were outside all the time. We had like this whole made up land in our little bush that was beside the house. And we had different characters and things. And I don't know, there was a day where we even like had a, we decided we wanted to make a fire pit. So we like spent the entire day hauling rocks from the field back to the yard. That's exhausting. With a wagon. And (laughs) this is fun. (laughs) So, and like we would do obstacle courses. My parents, um, my dad and my grandpa, they made, they welded an adult sized play set for us. So those classic, like with the swings and the slide, we had like an adult sized one and we would like spend all afternoon incorporating that with like a lawn bowling set and like skipping ropes and stuff like that. And we would make obstacle courses and then we would race each other and we would time it on our digital watches. And then we would do it a second time to see if we could beat ourselves. So you could say I've always been <laughs> super competitive, I guess. Especially in the time sports. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the fact that we had digital watches timing ourselves for like homemade obstacle courses. <laughs> Yeah. Did that lead to why you decided to do track and field and focus on track and field for high school? Uh, yes and no. I think it definitely fed like that competitive side of me and I've always been competitive. But as far as sports went, I was involved in anything and everything I could be, except anything that was endurance. <laughs> Not an endurance athlete by any stretch of the imagination. Just quick bursts. Yeah. So I even, I think I told my basketball coach in like grade 11 or 12, I'm like, you just got to put me on the court for like two minutes, rest yeah. me for 30 seconds and put me back yeah. out because but I'll give you energy. Yeah. I'm like this five minute shift thing. This is not no. working. <laughs> so, but I did everything from like, as a young kid, I was in figure skating for two years. Um, and that was in part to, I'm actually super pigeon toed naturally. Hmm. And so that was to help correct my arches to get me to push out. Um, I did like basketball, volleyball. I did badminton here and there. I wasn't consistent with that one every year. And then track. When you were just telling me before that you won the uh, high school championship. Yeah. Four by 100. Yeah, it was actually really fun. So our (laughs) (laughs) coming from like a small town community, we had a pretty tight knit team and we actually, we competed together since like grade seven. And so it was really fun getting to work with the same group of girls for our relay team year after year. And uh, it's it kind of one of those cute, like fairy tale stories where it's like in grade 10 at provincials, we got bronze and then grade 11, we got silver and then grade 12, we got gold. So 
it was a lot of fun and we got to do it with the same like five girls that were competing through that whole time and it was fun because we really worked together as a team with our coaches and with each other to achieve that goal so heading off to university what were you deciding at that point in regards to school in regards to athletics academics what were you looking at there So going into my last track meet in my grade 12 year, I actually thought that was going to be like the end of my athletic career, quote unquote, kind of thing. And I didn't realize that uh, university sports was something that was actually an option for me. Uh, Just, I guess, growing up in a small town, I didn't I didn't personally know anybody that had done it. Um, And then as I got closer and closer to like that graduation mark, the only people I knew that went on to play post-secondary were like the volleyball players that also played club in the city or the basketball people that also played club in the city. And I'm like, oh, I don't play club sports. That's where they recruit people from. So I didn't realize it actually would be an option until at that provincial track meet when a U of A coach talked to me and was like, hey, we would love for you to come out, give this a try. We think you got a lot of potential. So I think that summer I actually, within like months, uh, not even months, weeks, of provincials I just went out and did a club track meet with this club and to see where it would go and stuff like that and in the fall um, I continued training with that same club and uh, that that coach also was my university coach and my first year after high school I decided to do a year of bible college um, just to set apart kind of a year and to dive into that and explore that side of myself a little bit more and so I ran club for a year and then transition from club into varsity and what was your main event or focus for track and field (laughs) the shorter the better so i was a 60 meter specialist for indoors the next question i was going to ask you was (laughs) did you take that time to work on your endurance no (laughs) so i my coach i think signed me up for two different 300 meter um distance races during my university career and so in for indoor, you have different distances than outdoors. Sure, yeah, yeah. So indoors, it goes 60, then 300, and then 600. And so I think he signed me up for two different ones throughout my university career. And the first one, it was like one of my, it was still one of my first ever like club style meets. And I think I missed the call room by like two minutes or something like that. And the lady must have been having a bad day because she didn't let me race. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I'm okay with this. I feel kind of sick. And 300 meters is a long ways. And then the second time he had signed me up for one, he actually pulled me out because he's like, you know what? This is the day before you're 60 and I want you to do well in the 60. I'm pulling you out of the 300. And I'm like, oh, thank oh. you. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anything that long, I was like, I, I can do it. But I'm like, it's not my strong suit. No, I hit yeah. so much lactic. And the reality is this, like, my, the best part of my race was always the first, like, 20 to 30 meters I would kill people out of the blocks and then by the time we (laughs) hit like 30 to 40 I'm like snap what are these people doing here (laughs) how are they doing this so yeah I need to work on my top end (laughs) so tell me about that transition into bobsled then did that come during your university years yeah so my first season of club track and field the 2010-11 season I my training partner my primary training partner Um, was Christine De Bruin and she transitioned after that year into bobsled and so I got to watch Christine enter into the sport I got I learned about the sport and it was the first kind of aha moment where I was like oh this is an option because again I was like ah 
every single Olympic athlete, they must start their sport when they're like four years old. (laughs) Hmm. And I guess I was just, I didn't know that it was something that I could do. But as I watched Christine get into it, I was like, oh, we have similar like strengths as an athlete. Like we were both very strong sprinters. We had similar like assets as a sprint athlete. And so I was like, well, if she can do it, like I want to do that one day. I want to at least try it and see what happens. And so I continued to follow Christine as she competed on like Europa Cup. And then she switched from being a brakeman into being a pilot and watched her go through that process. And I continued to collect like data. So I actually... And uh, and throughout all this, you're not participating. You're just no, observing. I'm just observing. Okay. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I did my research very well before I even like tried out for the bobsled team or anything like that. Um, because I knew Christine, I had numbers from her as to like what her training targets were. So I was like, okay, this is what I want to be sprinting. This is what I want to be lifting. So I knew those kinds of things. Um, in the 2014 Olympics, CBC had an app that like listed different people's like height and weight. So I literally had a chart within my university binder of like average age, average weight, (laughs) average height. And then on the Canadian team, I was like, this is how long they've been on the team before they made the Olympics. Because I was trying to figure out, like, when do I want to make this transition? And uh, I decided to make the switch after, uh, in 2014, after the Olympics. First off, why did you decide? But also, when did you start thinking about, this was actually the decision that I want to make versus sticking through school and remaining with track? Yeah, as soon as I saw Christine make the switch was when I was like, I want to for sure try this one day. Okay. Uh, It was one of those things where I was like, oh, that's what I want to work towards long term. Um, In terms of when, I wasn't sure when it would be. And so I continued to press on with with track and field and with with my university studies. And uh, year two, actually, of university was a really hard year for me. I was a complete overkeener, and I still am. But I signed myself up for like spring and summer classes and then proceeded to apparently nobody had told me take all the hardest courses of my degree in the same semester so I hit February of like year two and I'm like I've been in school for 20 months straight and track wasn't going well and I was burning out in terms of like workload for classes and (laughs) it was yeah it was it was hard it was a hard time um that year I didn't make the um, relay team to go to nationals and actually and that was really that was a really big blow because the year before I was supposed to go to nationals and I tore my hamstring in the race right before nationals oh my gosh. so I'm like oh year two this was supposed to be my year of redemption because I mean I couldn't control the blown hamstring thing no and uh, I was just I had too much on my plate and wasn't performing the way I wanted to be performing so that was really frustrating and uh, year three three of my time at the U of A, um, was able to approach the sport a lot differently. I had taken the summer off of competing and training. Actually, I was working through what was probably undiagnosed stress fractures in my shins. (laughs) So I just took time off and I was like, you know what, come back in the fall and, uh, came back with a bit more perspective as well. Um, went home and I had worked for the summer and I also went on a missions trip to Uganda with a church group and we hosted a sports camp actually for some international kids at the school there and so it was just literally about teaching kids from age five to like age 16 some basketball skills and how to have fun with it and so that was cool it was a it was fun to be able to like just gain perspective from seeing sport from a different level and so came into that third year of university and um, 
had a different approach with it, but I also just felt that year that I was like a door was almost closing for me where I was just like, you know, I'm I'm happy with how this went. And that third year kind of felt in some ways redemptive in that like year one was hard because <laughs> last minute all of a sudden I blew up my hamstring and I didn't get to go to nationals. Year two was hard because I just tanked my performance Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so year three was really about like just running fast and having fun with it but it also felt like there was just it just something in like the pit of my stomach that was just like yeah it's time to move on and I like it didn't make logical sense because I wasn't done my eligibility for varsity and I wasn't done my degree but I was like you know what I'm gonna give bobsled a try Hmm. and so that's I guess it was just this this feeling and this peace about giving it a go <laughs> well, because at that point too you probably weren't thinking olympics for track and field though were you no no and i knew at, at a track and field level that i didn't have that kind of potential um i was doing track and field at a university level and my goals were to try and crack national right uh competitions yeah yeah i wasn't i knew that international track and field wasn't really um, in the cards necessarily for me. But then you think, oh, Christine's doing so well with her bobsled. Let's give this a shot. Yeah. And I think because she had piqued my interest just like with getting involved with the sport. So I, that was always had been a goal in the back of my mind. And all of a sudden during that third year um, running track at the U of A, I was like, yeah, I really want to pursue this and see where it can go. And the year prior in 2013, I did an ID camp with Bobsled Canada That's right, yeah. up in Edmonton, and it went super well, actually. And uh, where my numbers were at, were, they were great in terms of what they were looking for, for talent and stuff. And they had asked me to come down to do some stuff in the ice house. And I was like, no, can't do it. That's the same weekend as um, Can West. And so it's like, this is where my priority is right now. But yeah, I definitely want to stay in touch and talk about what it could look like to eventually make that switch so what did that id camp look like is it just like a combine type of deal or what yeah so bobsled canada has different standards and different data based off of different dryland tests so whether that's sprint times whether that's um, olympic lifts or squats or bench um, med ball throws that kind of stuff so uh, this camp in Edmonton, we they just collected data on us. They collected physical data. They were like, what do you weigh? What's your height? All that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, based off of that, they were like, yeah, we think like you might have a lot of potential for bobsled or uh, you might have a lot of potential for skeleton because bobsled and skeleton work together. And so uh, that camp was actually, <laughs> it was cool because the oh, CBC or CTV was out because this is the year leading up to the Olympics. And uh, they actually interviewed me as uh, a recruitment person for like the future of bobsled. So not looking at 2014, obviously, but looking at 2018. And actually, they had me interviewed in a clip that was um, a clip that was mostly about Heather Moyes, actually, and coming back from her (laughs) surgery. But it was cool that uh, like in 2013, I got identified as a potential Olympic bobsled athlete for the 2018 Olympics. And now come 2019 I can look back and be like wow that happened (laughs) how crazy is that you're like the LeBron James of bobsledding then (laughs) people already people already you're on the front page news people are interviewing you before you even you know enter into the program yeah it was it was a really cool experience and I think a lot of it had to do with the connections I had 
Uh, so with Christine getting involved and really that did come down also to our track and field coach, Rob Fisher and Rob, uh, when he ran track was trained by my bobsled strength and conditioning coach, Quinn, who was a coach up at the U of A at that time. And so it was through those connections and stuff like that, that I think I was able to make that transition so easily and bridge that because I was in touch with Quinn through Rob and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, Quinn was out at that camp. He's not, he wasn't out at a lot of recruitment camps, but they were like, Oh, we had, we had seen numbers on the list that we know what she can sprint and that kind of stuff. We're, we're interested in her. What was the most difficult transition for you though? Was it phys- the physical side, the technical side or the mental side from track to bobsled? For both my transition from like a high school multi-sport athlete to a collegiate track and field athlete. And then from a collegiate track and field athlete to a national team bobsled athlete, I think the hardest transition is that mental piece because all of a sudden you're, you're like a fish out of water and you're like on this whole new level of playing field and it's like you're thrown into this bigger pond. So when it was from like being a high school track athlete, like I competed in track and stuff like that, running, still running, but there's that mental game of like, man, uh, opportunities all of a sudden just got way bigger and what I'm working towards got a lot bigger and all of a sudden I'm not the big fish in the pond anymore. I have to work my way up the ladder and then coming into bobsled it was a similar idea where it's like there's just so much to learn mentally and you're like in this whole new arena and space and my transition into bobsled was um (laughs) it was crazy I guess because it was like the most steep learning curve ever probably um Kaylee Humphreys had come off of winning her second Olympic title and come I think October I was told, not directly, but more or less, that I would be competing with her. And so it was like from like watching her win gold in my basement in between studying for midterms to... You're like, excuse me, what? Competing with her. And I'm like, "Ah, I'm not an Olympic level athlete. I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, So just, yeah, that mental side. It's like, obviously, I had the physical skills from that cross training and stuff like that. But it was that mental side of like, how do I get myself to perform consistently? What does it look like to be on the road? Because for track and field, like, yeah, sure, we would travel for meets, but it's like, it'd be a weekend. All of a sudden with bobsled, you're on the road for like four to five months and you're like, okay, (laughs) this is foreign to me. And I'm, I'm not in North America. I'm over Mm -hmm. in Europe. Um, Also all these different, I guess, mental or emotional or spiritual hurdles of what does it look like um, to live in this high performance world? And what does it look like to perform at that kind of level? And I think Yogi Berra said it really nicely. And I'm going to mess up the quote because I get the numbers wrong. But uh, it's 50% of the game is like 80 or 90% mental or it's 90% of the game is 50% mental. But that's really true, especially when you get to like an elite level is it's crazy how much our minds can control our performance. And so it was that learning to to embrace the fact that I was like an elite level athlete. I think for me, it was hard because I had so much success, like right from go in the sport of bobsled. I think it was hard for me to actually accept Mm. (laughs) because I was kind of shell shocked myself in terms of like the position I found myself in. And there was a lot of people that like retired after the 2014 Olympics that made that possible. But yeah, I found myself in over my head. I think I was still asking myself in January. I'm like, do I want to 
be here? Do I like this sport? I don't know. We're still competing. We're on the World Cup. Okay. <laughs> so through all those times of going through that steep learning curve like you had alluded to before, what could you attribute to for getting you through those tough times um, or people, your support staff, whatever it looked like? How were they able to normalize the struggle or the um, the thoughts of, should I really be here? Um, for me, I guess there would be two things that really helped me and grounded me during that time. For me, my, my faith is something that's been something that's been grounding for my whole life and something that um, I carry with me. But in that time, I think one of the biggest things I learned was to reach out and ask for help. And so whether that was like, texting friends from back home to be like, Hey, like, can we just chat? Um, I understand that obviously like, it's not that they didn't want to talk to me. It's just, I'm not there in that immediate space with them. And we're, we're working with time zones and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So all of a sudden, and, um, instead of people reaching out to me, I had to learn to humble myself and just reach out and be like, Hey, I want to catch up with you. Hey, I want to talk. Hey, can I talk to you? I just need some, I'm such an outward processor too. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it was just like, Hey, I just want to talk. And I think for me, over the four years, actually, of that last Olympic cycle, it was learning what does it look like um, to be able to develop that self-care piece um, of being on the road and dealing with different things. I've always been a journaler, but like that became something that was important as part of my processing. Is it difficult to share, share your struggles with your other teammates because knowing they potentially have things that they're working through, mm-hmm. things going on in their lives? Yes and no. Um, I'm a pretty open book. (laughs) So I think sometimes I overshare and I don't know if people are always comfortable with that. Mm. And so it's interesting too, because I think high performance sport is very much, it's still, it's performance driven, right? And so it's for a lot of people, if you don't know how to deal with certain emotions, you just, you're like, okay, no, we're going to push those to the side. We're not dealing with them right now. Um, We want to, you know, look tough, act tough. We're ready to go at the drop of a hat. And for me, I've been one of those people that like, no, I can funnel whatever this emotion is into my performance, but I also want to deal with that because I want to be an emotionally healthy person. And so because I'm also an outward processor, I'd be the kind of person that would want to reach out to teammates and stuff. But at the same time, um, over the course of time, learning when that's appropriate, because I have understood also from my experience, um, I've been sometimes the person that people will reach out to and it, it is emotionally draining sometimes. And the mm-hmm. reality is, is those things we don't think necessarily will affect our performance, but they can because it's, it's a draw on our energy. And so it was a process of learning who to reach out to, who to talk to, all those kinds of things. Because the reality is, is on our team, um, sometimes it's hard to have those conversations because we're constantly competing, not only against the world, but the reality is, is we have a very competitive environment within our team because we're constantly competing against each other and pushing one another to be better and uh, racing each other for spots because bobsled is a really unique sport in that within Team Canada, we have smaller teams, that being our sleds, but then from one week to the next, who's racing with who can can change. And so you're constantly also competing against people um, in your position for that spot. And that's not necessarily that different from the next sport where, you know, you're 
on a volleyball team and the setters are competing for who's going to start that week. So it's interesting to try and balance what does it look like to be um, teammates and competitors and friends and family because you're on the road with these people for like five to six months of the year and it's intense. That's a fascinating piece to talk about here. The rotational lineups, if you will, (laughs) for... Uh, for bobsled where you've mentioned to me in the past that you really just cycle through partners mm-hmm. on a regular basis and how frequent is that and how does that look to start off each uh, each training season so every single year we go through a testing camp process whether you've been a multiple time olympic champion or whether you're a complete rookie and so based off of uh, we'll start with testing in the ice house. We'll do physical dryland testing and then physical testing in the ice house. And based off of those push times, especially in the brakeman position or a, pu- or a push athlete position, um, those kind of rank you and make or break you in terms of like what opportunities you may have in at least in near future. And so based off of that kind of ranking system, we'll go- then go to our preseason evaluation races where Typically, your top pushing athletes will be paired with who has proven over the last season usually to be your most successful driving athlete. But from that point in time, things can continue to switch up. And sometimes on a given week, we'll do a push off where you're going head to head with another athlete um, to see who's better on that track that week. And other times it'll be a set thing where it's like, okay, we're going to flip flop because we want to look at race data. And so we're going to give this person this race and that person that race and then based off of three or four races we're going to look at it and determine for worlds this is who's going to be in this sled that's who's going to be in that sled and so it's interesting because yeah you have this culture of teams within teams um, but that we're also team Canada and so it's 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 sometimes a hard balance because we are team Canada but within team Canada we're competing against each other Mm-hmm. constantly so and it is it is hard sometimes to also be switching who you're racing with because it does take time to build chemistry and to just even figure out on even a basic level like what does what does this person need um, to perform at a high level what is their race week routine in terms of like what does it look like to prep a sled what does it look like to polish runners so all those kinds of routines so the more you work with someone the more you're able to fall into those patterns and when you're working with somebody new, uh, you just have to be a lot more intentional with it and ask those questions of like, okay, so what do you want out of me this week? What does like, how can I help your performance? How can you help my performance? Um, whether it's something like, yeah, okay, I want you to take care of the sled on race day and I'm just going to come kind of look at it when it's done, give you a thumbs up and keep on doing my track walk or something like that. Um, so so whether, it's an ongoing dialogue really, hey? Yeah. yeah. And when you've competed with somebody for a long time, like I did over the last quad about ooh, 20 plus races with Kaylee. So we fell into a rhythm where it's like, okay, I just kind of, we knew from each other what we would get from each other in terms of like energy or words of encouragement or anything like that. And we also knew kind of how we would set up a race week. So that kind of stuff, because we work together so often, became more routine or more automatic so you didn't have to be as intentional but when I worked with for instance uh, Christine Olympic Mm -hmm. year um, me and her had not raced together very many times and so I remember actually at the Olympics sitting down with her and being like okay how can I help you 
like mentally to be in the best headspace possible for this race. And we literally had that conversation at the Olympics. (laughs) It's like cramming for a test, eh? Yeah. (laughs) That's so interesting to me. How frequent are the uh, partner switches throughout a season? It really depends. Uh, if we, if, if it's a season where one athlete um, as a brakeman is kind of in a standout position, then that's going to be not switched up as much. So if you go back to year two of the last Olympic cycle, Kaylee and I raced all nine races together um, because um, just the way things worked out in terms of people's uh, weight, because we have a, a maximum weight in terms of what you can weigh with the equipment and a minimum weight. So that leaves us um, being around 80 kilos in gear each. And so depending on what your sled weighs, of course, that determines what kind of combinations you can have. Okay. So, uh, yeah, year, so I guess to answer your question, so year two of the last Olympic cycle, for instance, Kaylee and I went, uh, we were racing together nine for nine races. Yeah. Uh, the following year, we went through this, uh, okay, there was two of us that were very, very competitive. So then we flip-flopped races for a couple races until we decided – okay, who for world champs is going in. Um, year four, <laughs> we had we had a lot of depth going into the Olympic year. So we there was a lot of changes that were consistently made because um, we had five, six girls that were super, super competitive. And so those changes can be um, within a couple people and on a week-to-week basis. Or if you look at the men's side, actually, with four men, they were making changes all the time because they were trying to figure out the best combinations of okay, how can we as Team Canada put together the best pushing teams to give us the best opportunity at the Olympics possible? And so it was this constant um, game of trying to figure that out. And so switches can be <laughs> not at all in terms of like going nine for nine in the like season with, the same, yeah. with the, the same pilot, or they can be week after week after week. It's like tinkering with a recipe, eh? Mm-hmm. From a mental standpoint, how do you battle that? Because your nerves and your thoughts must be going all over the place because you're like, am I going to be racing with Kaylee still? Mm-hmm. Or am I going to be switching? And how do you remain focused even so For that sure. you're still performing at a high level? Yeah, it's really hard because there's a lot of uncertainty. And yeah. of course, right, the stakes are high. Yeah. Um, it's it's the difference of going to the Olympics or not going to the Olympics. It's the difference of having this potential to medal at the Olympics or not medal at the Olympics. And that can, <laughs> that can drive you crazy when you've put so much time and effort into something. Uh, but something that I kept on focusing on and working on with my sports performance coaches and stuff like that was just focus on what you can control here in this moment Hmm. and Olympic year that was really put to the test about, uh, 50 days to the opening ceremonies. My, (laughs) my body decided to stop cooperating a little bit and I had some compensation patterns that led to some cramping. And so I ended up sitting out three out of four races, second half of the Olympic year. That was your hip injury, right? Yeah. So what ended up happening is my my left femur kind of, instead of it sitting nice and loose in the hip joint, it likes to kind of get sucked up and forward, and that causes a bunch of different compensation patterns. And essentially, the reason it was happening was because as bobsled athletes, we're strong and powerful enough that if things aren't firing properly, we could literally tear our own bodies apart. And so um, my body was just, it had happened two or three times in the summer, we kept on putting my hip back in place, and then the season, uh, the first three, four races, we like kept on kind of like manipulating that hip again. And, uh, we got to Europe 
and it was that fourth race of the season and we got to the line run two and I turned to my coach and I'm like can you rub my hamstrings right now because they are cramping <laughs> and we're literally gonna go down the track in like a minute the sled before us <laughs> is going and I'm like control you can control and uh <laughs> So he's standing at the line. He's rubbing my hamstrings. I'm like, okay, we're good. Yeah. Hopefully we turn that off. And uh, my calves ended up cramping like steps two and three or something like that. And uh, we're like, okay, whatever. It's a one-off. And uh, three, four days later, I was warming up again uh, just on a training day. And like my hamstring grabbed. And we're like, okay, nope, there's, there is an issue here. And so... Uh, yeah, I really got tested in terms of like focus on what you can control when yeah. 50 days before the Olympics, your body's not cooperating. <laughs> that wasn't the same hamstring you tore in in uh, university though, was it? So I tore my left hamstring in university yeah, okay. and uh, that was the worst tear. I, I had tweaked the other side different times as okay. well. Yeah. So, and these, this wasn't a hamstring tear. It was just, it was... Uh, cramping where it kind of like grabbed and uh, yeah go. from compensation I guess. yeah and yeah. it was just like so we had to end it up in the end we, we essentially stripped down a whole bunch of muscle tone and like had to build things back up but we were literally doing this like weeks before leaving to korea for the olympics um because the reality is on tour is like it's just you're go 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 so even if you're not racing i sat out three or four races but you're at the track and you're moving equipment and all that kind of stuff and Moving equipment actually is one of the harder parts of our sport because we don't think to warm up for it, but you're moving around 170 kilo sleds, yeah, so 350 pounds, and you're just hauling this around day in, day out. And so it's hard to, if you're injured on tour, it's hard to get better. It's really hard. Yeah, we were literally still working with this and working through it at the Olympics, and I was in this massive time crunch where I'm like, oh man, like the goal is to walk away Olympic champion, is that still possible? And so having to work through that fear and that uncertainty of like, is, is a medal possible? Is, is going to the Olympics even possible now at this point? Because like, the reality is, is it's a sport measured in hundreds and yep. there's no time to, to wait for somebody to, you know, get better. The reality was, is I, I could push well, but I couldn't push at my best. 100% no. Yeah, without sitting on the table for five six hours we did a push off i think in january at some point and i literally sat on the table we did eight hours of therapy the day after oh my goodness <laughs> yeah <laughs> what was the anxiety level like i think i managed it well but for sure like there was moments where like it would want to get the best of me because it is scary when you have your dreams on this line and you're like you're teetering this and it's like a carrot in front of your face and you're like is this gonna happen like i've worked so hard about this and i've dreamed so long about this like it's not just you either it's like family and friends yeah and like you knew oh, my parents had their yeah. tickets to go to the olympics yeah. but i don't know if i did <laughs> so and i can remember like writing in a journal i like i was in grade eight and something along the lines of like man i would just love to be able to go to the olympics and kind of compete on that level and so this is like a childhood dream that you're like it's so close i can taste it but it's who knows? Like, I have no idea what might happen. And so for me in that time, like, I'm really thankful that by the time, like, year four came around, I had learned a lot about what it looked like to be on the road. And I learned a lot about the pressure of high-performance sport. And so I had a really solid team around me. Um, I was working with a sport performance consultant, a, a, a sports psych. And we talked a lot back and forth about, like, different um, – like coping things so whether that was like 
year of the Olympics, I actually had like sleep goals. That was part of it. It was just like, what can we do to make sure that I am at my fullest capacity? So I actually have the energy to kind of deal with all these unknowns and uncertainties. So um, like my sleep goal for the Olympic year was to be in bed for 10 hours, <laughs> which was hard for me. <laughs> But it was stuff like that. And I had like a list on my phone of things that like, these are like Melissa's life list kind of thing. And it was like just a list of things that like, if I'm feeling stressed or if I just need me time, like a list of ideas of things that like I enjoy. And uh, Olympic year, I also upgraded my journal to an art book and I had watercolors with me on tour. And so I would journal um, with watercolors and stuff like that. And I also had an amazing community around me. I had a prayer group. It's kind of a sounding board and an outlet to be able to yeah. talk about certain things. And totally. I also um, worked with a woman through Athletes in Action, Roxanne Coop, and we decided that we wanted to, for the six months leading into the Olympics, we chatted every other week. And so just having those things built into my routine really helped me um, to work through that uncertainty and to continue to like, focus on what I could control and continue to hope and to dream when things looked kind of dismal. <laughs> From a physical standpoint, then how were you able to get that hamstring and the cramping ready to go? It was a big team effort, um, working with, with coaches and working with therapists. And yeah. we continued to do that, um, December, January, February. And it was a constant ongoing thing because we were also, it, it was this big puzzle. We weren't exactly sure what was going on. Oh, we're like, oh, okay. we see we see that you're cramping. We see that every single time you go 100%, something seizes up. But I would go 80%, things would be fine. 90%, things were okay. All of a sudden you go 100%, whether it was my hamstring, whether it was my calf, whether it was like my deep rotators within my glute, something was going wrong. So it was this big puzzle of us trying to figure out like, okay, so what's what's going on? And then how do we treat it? A lot of the work that we did actually, when we finally came home from like the World Cup tour actually, and we had our Olympic holding camp, I spent a lot of time again on the therapy table and we stripped down muscle tone and stuff like that in order to be able to just try and like integrate activation things. Um, we made sure my hip constantly checking in that my hips were sitting in the good position, right place. And then it was just making sure that we were activating all those smaller supportive muscles that uh, <laughs> were either not doing their job or overdoing their job. And so mm -hmm. it was just that constant check-in. And uh, even at the Olympics, when we got to Korea, I was working really closely with the therapy team just to make sure that like my body was where it needed to be in terms of like making sure the right things were firing, making sure that my glutes were actually doing their job. <laughs> so take me through that journey of at this point, your dream of going to the Olympics not sure if it's going to happen, mm -hmm. but then the rebound and the resurgence, if you will, of now I finally have my sights set on the Olympics and I'm going to be competing in that. Mm -hmm. And Christine playing a big part in that as well. Yeah, it was a crazy process, actually. So only two nations in the world get to send three sleds in the women's discipline for Olympics. And uh, we were neck and neck with the U.S. in terms okay. of sending that third sled. So the one race I actually did in the second half of the Olympic season on the World Cup was that last qualifying race. And the coaches were like, yeah, we know you're injured and stuff like that, like, but you're good enough to go. We're going to put you in. We think you're, you know, our, our strongest play for helping qualify that third sled in this race. And it literally was a, a do or die situation where uh, if Canada finished 
one spot ahead of the U.S., Canada went to the Olympics and the U.S. went right. home. If the U.S. finished one spot ahead of us, U.S. went to the Olympics, Canada went home. So we were in like a sudden death situation after mm. the seven or after six races. It came down to the seventh race as to who would go and who would go home. And that said, go home as ranked ninth in the world. That's how intense this competition was. And so it was really cool in that moment for me to get to step in. This was actually the first international race I did with Christine. And it was cool because I obviously followed her career for so long and been a part of her journey and in different ways, shapes and forms, whether that was training together back in track and field or observing from a distance or watching her overcome her own like injuries and trials and that kind of stuff. And now I was in this role where my sights were still set on being in that top sled and I just got to come in and compete with a friend and be that support system for her and be that, I guess that mental stable kind of you got this role. And so this was um, over in St. Moritz, Switzerland, and it was it was a crazy race because both her and the U.S. pilot were so, so stressed because their dreams are on the line. Yeah. It literally comes down to this one race, and they have, are racing against one other person. And uh, I can remember in the back of the sled that uh, I was like, man, that was not a good run because you, you know in the back of the sled how things are supposed to feel. You get the rhythm and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I was like, we got to the bottom, like, Christine, shake it off it's a two run race because at that point in time we were behind the u.s team and then <laughs> run two we got we got up there and i'm like girl it's all about what you can control and just like had this really cool opportunity to share with her some of the things i was learning um and just kind of be that positive person for her and that stable factor and uh we went out and we did all we could and it wasn't a great run again but at the bottom of the hill, we're like, okay, we did what we could. And then we had to watch the U.S. sled come down. And <laughs> it was the most intense thing, not only for myself, but just to be in that space with Christine and be like, man, it's all riding on this. How many exhales did you take oh, when that U.S. <laughs> run went down? Can you count on one hand? Oh. Not even? Yeah, I don't know. I... <laughs> you must have been holding your breath the entire time. Yeah, and it's so hard, too, to see because it's, like, there was a sled in between us. So oh. it's not like it's not like um, the time on the clock was against our time. So we're looking at, like, okay, so she's this much ahead or behind this other sled that was this much ahead of us. And we're like, okay, what does this mean? Where are we actually sitting? Yeah. And so they cross the finish line, and we're, like, still sitting there, like, trying to figure out on our fingers. We're like, did we qualify? Did we not qualify? What on earth? And all of a sudden we realized we did and we burst into tears and we were just hugging each other. Honestly, that was one of the coolest moments in my career because we're just like, we did it. We made Canadian history. This is the first time we've ever qualified three women's sleds for the Olympics. And uh, it was actually really funny because if you look back at the footage and stuff like that, we're, everybody's crying on the dock. We're crying on the, on the finished dock. The U.S. team is crying on the finished dock. Um, I think I posted a clip a little bit later where me and Christine are going back up in the sled truck and like we're crying and I turned to her and I'm like, we did it. We made Olympic history. And like just bawling because we're just all so happy. And my heart was so full just because I got to do this with, it was, it was very much felt like it was with her and for her in that moment because I had no idea at that point in time that in a month, I would actually be racing with her. It's funny how things work out. 
but our coach, our head coach, <laughs> he had no idea what to say because he came down to the finish line and he was in the truck um, while the U.S. team was going. So he wasn't actually sure what the results were. And he's like, I came down to the finish dock and you guys were crying and the U.S. girls were crying and I had no idea who won and who didn't win. <laughs> and he's like, next time in this kind of situation, can at least you smile? <laughs> But we were just also overwhelmed with this emotion. <laughs> That's an intense moment. Oh, it was so intense. And it was so beautiful. And I just remember even like afterwards when we put away the sleds, um, there was a bunch of us girls, like the other teams as well. like, um, And we were all just like, we did it. As a team, we made Canadian history and we're sending three sleds to the Olympics. And I can remember there was a group of us that sat down in my living room in August and we're like, our goals as a women's team is to send three sleds. We want to work together to send three sleds. And strike that off the list. Yeah. And it was like so close, but we did it. We did it. And it was, it was so exciting. It was such a cool moment to be a part of. Who was the other country that had three sleds then? Germany. Yeah. They're always such a powerhouse. (laughs) Yeah. So, and Germany was kind of in that situation, unless they screwed up really, really badly, they were sending three. It really was down to like who out of Canada and USA was sending that third. Right afterwards, did you just call your parents and say, you can book your tickets to South Korea now? (laughs) So they had everything booked already because the reality is is this is January and the Olympics are less than a month away. I guess so, hey? Yeah. Yeah, So that's one of the hard things too, because it's like, for, and it's not just bobsled, it's most Olympic sports is like, it takes a massive community and village to get you to this point of getting to compete at the Olympics, but there's so much uncertainty around it. Like my parents and my sister and her husband, they had, I remember at Christmas time, uh, we had gotten their Olympic event tickets in the mail and I'm like, okay, now I just need to make it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they had everything booked already and stuff like that. And just because I helped qualify Christine also actually at that point in time did not guarantee that I would be racing really? at the Olympics. Yeah. <laughs> and my, my leg was still up in the air in terms of like, where is Melissa's body at? And mm. we had such a competitive team, remember? And so uh, as break women, there was literally like hundreds between us. And so it was an ongoing evaluation um, we got told actually after the next race who would be named um, to the Olympic t- team as racing athletes and who would be named as alternates. And uh, our Olympic announcement was, I think, a week after that at the end of January, beginning of February. But in that time, we were still working through like, okay, we know what Melissa can do. She has 17 World Cup medals. She has two World Championship medals. She has four crystal globes, two gold, two silver. We have no doubt that Melissa is an amazing bobsled athlete, but we don't know physically where her health is at still. And so even after I was named to the Olympic team officially, I still actually had to prove fitness (laughs) literally days before hopping on a plane. And uh, that that was the final straw. Like that's all they needed to see to know that you were going to be at the Olympics then. Yeah, so officially I was already named to the team as a com- as a competitive athlete, but they were like, we need to make sure that, yeah, you can actually push yeah. and give us your all because it's, and not that like, I, sh- I shouldn't even say give it, give us your all because it's like, obviously you're putting your heart and your soul into it every single time you're pushing, but like, is your body in that capacity? Yeah. And so, um, yeah, had to prove fitness here in Canada, but then we still hopped on that plane and I officially did not know who I was actually racing with at the Olympics because 
um, there was a chance I'd be racing with Christine, but there was also a chance that I would be racing with Kaylee. And, um, throughout this whole process, they kept on saying like, okay, obviously you and Kaylee have accomplished a lot together. We know that you're a really good team. You guys have results, consistently have results. You're consistently on the podium. I think we were like something crazy, like 80% of the time we raced together, we meddled. And so they're like, we, we want to make sure that like at the Olympics, we have the best possible team together. So I kept on being told throughout this whole process of making sure my body was ready to go that come Olympics, we were going to still do a push off and go head to head to make sure we put together the best teams possible at that point in time. So (laughs) we hopped on a plane and I still had no idea who I was actually racing with at the Olympics. Landed in Korea, I still didn't know who I was racing with at the Olympics. And uh, we had talked about doing a push-off, and we had a couple training days before the opening ceremonies. And actually, it would have been two days before the opening ceremonies, before our first day of training. Um, It was at that point in time that I got pulled aside, and they said, you know what, we know we, we said this, Um, But at this point in time, we just feel that it's best, despite the fact that we know that you're a great push athlete, we know that you have proven results. Um, We're going to, we're going to put you with Canada three. And it was a very interesting moment because I, I just remember like my stomach dropping like 24 stories Mm. because it's like, I was working to be Olympic champion. Like the last two years I was back to back silver at world championships. And I'm like, this was the time to be able to, you know, step up and win it. And I was, um, I did everything in my control that I could. Um, and then it just rug felt like it was pulled out from underneath my feet. And totally. that opportunity to be Olympic champion wasn't realistic anymore. So I, it was, a, it was, the Olympics was every single like human emotion back together in two weeks where it was like, these amazing highs and these crazy lows where it was like, I was balancing this reality of like, I was at the Olympics and I was living this childhood dream, but my goal was to compete for the title. And that wasn't in the realm of possibilities anymore. So how do you then gather yourself to still compete at your highest level? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's be honest. Like there was a lot of disappointment there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was a journey and a process for sure. And I think it was, it was a day in day out roller coaster of Mm. like, I'm at the Olympics. I'm not at the Olympics in the position I was really dreaming to be in the Olympics at. And, uh, I did give it some time, I think to, to process after the opening ceremonies, after those first two days of training. And then we did opening ceremonies. We actually went down to the coastal village just to do dry land stuff because we weren't competing until week two of the Olympics. So I did give myself a little bit of time and space just to like kind of let it soak in just the reality of where I was at and uh, did a lot of journaling, did a couple phone calls to people back home. Roxanne, um, yeah. help me out here. <laughs> yeah, and uh, did a lot of devotions and asked a lot of questions and uh, talked to a lot of different people. At the Olympics too, they're really good with having like support staff because – one of the, I guess, the Olympics is such an oxymoron in some ways. It's bittersweet in that, like, 
there's so many beautiful moments and we see that back home and you see like those victories and you see how amazing and awesome they are because it is this amazing celebration and accumulation of like years of hard work and sacrifice and perseverance. But for every single Olympic story like that, there's also an Olympic story where it's like, oh yeah, that was my dream and it didn't happen. So whether that was my story or whether that was watching other people not get named to like relay teams or something like that, or watching people um, fall on, you know, in their event or miss a gate or whatever it was. False start. False start. All those things, right? Where it's like you've worked so long and so hard and to, um, it's it's a sobering reality that it's like, it's cool because you see your teammates and your team Canada you get to celebrate these amazing successes and at the 2018 Olympics like as a as a team we set a new record in terms of how many medals we brought home but that there was also so many stories of people that you know poured their heart and soul into their work for years and 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 that Olympic performance and then it didn't pan out the way they hoped totally yeah so it's an interesting um, space to work in and compete in and walk in and knowing that like they do a really good job of bringing alongside like um, sports psychs bringing along um, retired athletes that have been through that crazy roller coaster you've been in because the reality is is you're in this sport bubble where like mm-hmm. winning or not winning does feel like life or death even though it's not <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And you had to see your family too, right? Mm-hmm. Like they were all there. Yeah. Yeah. My, so my mom, my dad, my sister and her husband came out to Korea. That's awesome. Though. Yeah. It was really cool. And we got to actually the day after my competition, we got to spend some time together. We went into Seoul. We toured like this palace together. We did a traditional meal. So that was, it was a lot of fun to be able to, to see them, to have them there, to have that kind of support. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some happy things. <laughs> What were some of your favorite moments from 2018 Pyeongchang? It was really, really cool watching my teammates, Justin Cripps and Alex Kopax, tie for gold. That was huge. so fun and so cool to watch. Um, because coming into at least Olympic season, they they were on the radar, but they weren't like pegged as a threat for being the Olympic champions. And so it was cool to watch the whole process throughout the season, but also just to, oh man, to watch the celebration. And I I so wish we were competing right after that. So we didn't get to be at the track, Mm. but we were watching in one of the athlete like common rooms and just to watch even the celebration of all the different guys that were there and the staff. And it was just so cool to be able to see that moment and to celebrate that moment uh, because you know, we see the hard work they put in and we, and, and we also do this as a team as much as we're competing sometimes against each other. We also know that we're doing that and that we push one another. And the reality is, is we're helping out each other on tour and all that kind of stuff. So that was, that was a really, really cool moment to be able to be a part of celebrating that and seeing that happen. Um, so that was definitely a highlight. Did you meet any cool people? Oh, there's so many cool athletes on Team Canada. <laughs> So just even getting to hang out in like... Scott and Tessa? Yeah, I, I didn't meet Tessa. I hung out with Scott though a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> he hey, is you're in. So hilarious. Um, <laughs> but 
but it's cool just getting to hang out in like the athlete common rooms team canada does a good job of setting up just these athlete spaces where we can just go hang out and uh cheer on you know other team canada athletes watching on the tv but they also have like foosball tables set up and that kind of stuff so getting to know other athletes i think was for sure one of the coolest highlights for me but i think maybe my biggest take home from the olympics would have been it was just so overwhelming and so humbling to be able to see the excitement coming from back home and especially from my hometown up in barhead and just to see like literally the town painted red and that kind of stuff was it was so cool to be able to just feel so loved in that moment and to see that like just by me being me and like working my hardest and like taking risks and that kind of stuff just to see how that inspired my community that was that's irreplaceable (laughs) making your heart tingle here oh yeah (laughs) it is cool to see the reach and the influence and the impact that you've had though Mm -hmm. and you can't really put a qualifier on that until you actually go back home and Mm -hmm. uh, hear the responses and uh, the reactions from people whether from in Barhead or even throughout Mm -hmm. all of Canada really yeah so what was or what were some of the biggest takeaways from you um, throughout this whole process of the uncertainty of everything and not knowing uh, you know exactly where you're gonna land there was a couple standout things for me one of the biggest things I think through that whole process was reflecting on a lot of actually my childhood and how I grew up and the example my parents led and lived out through through farming and I reflected a lot on that growing process I'm always a person that's trying to challenge myself but in that process of uncertainty I kept on reflecting back on growing up on the farm and what does it look like to you know you spend all this time and this money and this effort preparing a field and planting a seed and you put in this financial investment and you put in this time investment and and this investment of work and you you do the best you possibly can to nurture that seed, but you don't actually get to control if it sprouts and if it grows and how well it grows and you don't control the weather and all these kinds of things, all these uncertainties that kept on getting thrown at you. But you keep on working and you keep on being consistent and faithful and persevering, trusting and hoping that, you know, in the end, you're going to have this harvest. Mm. And so I kept on reflecting on that during those times of uncertainty and being like, okay, what can I control? Well, I can't control the weather. <laughs> I can't control um, the wildlife or anything like that. But I can control how I nurture and take care of this gift that's been given to me. And I can control my effort. And I can control how I take care of myself on and off the field, per se. And continuing to hope and work towards what I hoped would be this, you know, bounty crop harvest kind of thing at the end of the day. And uh, it's interesting reflecting on growing up on the family farm and that example. And I think throughout this process, actually, I learned and resonated a lot with that and the uncertainty that my parents work through every single year and uh, connected with them a lot and had a lot of respect for that because it takes guts, especially after, you know, if if you had a crop that the geese ate everything or it was a beautiful crop and then it rained all fall and everything sprouted and you couldn't get stuff in or it snowed and all of a sudden it's March and that canola crop that was supposed to be an amazing cash crop is sitting out in the field still and you have to pick up the pieces and clean up that mess and plant again and 
work again and hope to reap again. And it's really this beautiful analogy for life that I carried really closely to me. And whether, you know, the, that harvest is as beautiful and bountiful as you hoped it would be, or if it isn't, you get back out there and you do it again. Because even though if the hard harvest is bountiful, mm-hmm. things can still go sideways. And <laughs> which it kind of did for your Olympic experience, mm-hmm. where maybe the harvest you could equate that to making the Olympics. Yeah. And that was kind of the case with you mm-hmm. not knowing, you know, whether you were sled one and then having mm-hmm. to race, end up racing sled three. Yeah. It's really interesting too. Cause I think one of the most beautiful takeaways from the whole analogy is this idea that what you do with the harvest, you don't mm. always get to control how much of a harvest you get, but the reality is, is you can take those seeds, those things that you learned and those things that you did and accomplished. And some of them a farmer might take and reinvest into a new crop. And it becomes, you know, new dreams for yourself that you get to work and cultivate on. But the large majority of the seeds you actually take and you sell and they're processed and they feed the world. And I think the coolest part is about this whole Olympic journey is that I get to work on this craft and as I live out my story, I get to inspire others and the things that I do get to become dreams for other people. And I just, so there's this quote actually that resonated a lot with me. And I first heard it on Coach Carter and I looked it up and uh, the full quote is, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness that frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us. It's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others and the quotes by uh, Marianne Williamson and coach Carter they don't actually have all the God part in that but it was kind of cool when I looked it up because for me um, as a Christian that resonated just a little bit deeper but I just love that concept of you know as I live out my story and as I choose to conquer the fears in my life and as I choose to take risks and step out because I choose to live big my presence can automatically liberate and encourage other people to do the same. I love that idea and that principle. And it comes back to that concept of this harvest, right? Like this, these things that I did to, you know, over to step out and take risks and, and plant a seed and to work hard and, and make a dream, give it every opportunity it can. It becomes this harvest that can encourage other people to look at their lives and challenge themselves and be like, okay, where can I step up or step out or what's my dream or what ambitions do I have whether it's being just like 1% better tomorrow or whether it's literally like packing up everything you own moving to a new city and trying out for a sports team like I did (laughs) we're gonna circle back to this farming analogy but I just wanted to chat about how the Olympics played out for you anyway with Mm -hmm. uh racing with Christine and sled three there um so sled one, obviously, Kaylee was in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then who was pushing for her? 
uh, Felicia George. She's a Canadian track and field athlete, hurdlist specialist, but she's also competed four by one. And then sled two, we had uh, Alicia Risling and Heather Moyes. And then Christine De Bruin. Mm-hmm. And myself. And there you go, yours truly. Yeah, uh, I, it was. The Olympics was it was such an interesting experience because I was holding those two realities of, uh, I was living out this childhood dream and struggling with this concept of like I had wanted to be in that top sled and it was it was so close in my grasp but working with Christine I actually I learned a lot through that process it was it was challenging to be able to um, mentally circle back to be in that kind of headspace to compete but it was also really cool to be able to work with Christine because the way Christine and I worked together, it was it was different than how Kaylee and I had worked together in the past. And so it was cool that um, I was able to, again, kind of play that supportive role in my relationship with Kaylee because, you know, Kaylee has accomplished a lot in the sport and I came in as a rookie. I learned a lot from her. Um, with Christine, we were both rookies at the Olympics and we got to lean on each other and we got to learn from each other and we got to support each other in a really cool and unique way and uh, in hindsight it was just one of those moments where it feels so full circle Um, the fact that Christine was this person that piqued my interest in the sport Mm. it got me involved in the sport Um, the year actually before I started that spring uh, in 2014 she married her husband from who was also part of the bobsled community and I went to their wedding and I met other people from Team Canada and then I got to continue to journey with her um, as we both cracked the the national team and then I helped her qualify for the Olympics and all of a sudden these two girls from not the Edmonton area we literally grew up like I grew up in Barrett she grew up in Ottawa so that's like half hour apart hmm. so these two girls uh, from middle of nowhere Alberta who had joked about competing together at the Olympics five, six, seven years prior. We were there and we were doing it. And it's just such a cool moment because I had seen Christine's story unfold from the very beginning. And I saw the different things she worked through. And I saw how she chose to overcome again and again um, four years prior to these Olympics. So back in 2014, she was working through a slip disc in her back. So overcoming a massive injury and to see her come back and fight again and again and Those again. Are tricky. Yeah. It was so cool to get to be able to compete with her, knowing her story. Yeah. See being being a part of her story for so long. Like we were we're longtime friends. And just maybe that gratitude piece yeah. of like, thank you for introducing me to the sport. Yeah. It was it was a really cool full circle moment where um yeah, it's hard. I guess it's hard to put into words. Did you also build off some of that momentum from that uh, that third sled victory? Yeah, it was cool that we had that moment where we were competing together beforehand, and yeah. we were able to be successful as a team um, and qualify that third sled together. The reality was is the expectations for Christine and I at the Olympics weren't high. Like our coaches were like, "Yeah, if you finish top ten, that'd be great," kind of thing, and. Uh, we're like no we want to we want to do better than that but we also want to we were like this is our first olympics we're also here to have fun mm-hmm. so we were able to kind of help keep each other in perspective and we both are very we're positive people and we know we perform better when we have that positive mindset so we also like 
we literally sat down at the Olympics and we're like, okay, what do we need to perform at our best? And we made some rules for ourselves and we were like, okay, no complaining. <laughs> Cause it's so easy to complain when you're outside for like eight days or eight hours a day slaving away with like equipment or polishing runners or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, so we're like, no, we want to like be encouraging. We want to ha- like set this positive atmosphere for us to compete in. Yeah, yeah it was, play to your strengths, right? Yeah, exactly. So it was cool that we were able to work together in those things and uh, build each other up. Yeah. And we actually, we blew away people's expectations. People were like, we would, it would be great for you to come top 10. We finished seventh at the Olympics and literally tenths of a second out of a medal. The, the spread between third place and eighth place and eighth, yeah. were, it was so tight actually. And it was incredible to be in that kind of position. And it was cool because we, we outperformed people's expectations and we had fun doing it. So it was almost like a blessing. It was cool. It was, yeah, it, it was a blessing in disguise, I think yeah. for sure. Yeah, because it wasn't easy. It was definitely hard. I remember actually day one of the competition, I was continuing still to work through that tension of like, okay, what does it look like to compete here? It's different than I thought it would be. Um, My goals are different than I thought they would be. What do you mean by different though? You said it was different competing there. Just the stakes are higher, more, a little more pressure, bigger spotlight. Almost the opposite in a way. Um, because for so long I was on that top sled and we were consistently, um, the expectation was to walk home with a medal every single time. And I remember actually there was one time where, where Kaylee and, and another girl had missed the podium. I think they were like fourth or fifth and, um, the media expects Kaylee to be on the podium and the, the headlines were Kaylee disappoints and misses the podium. So it was, um, interesting going from this position of like, the, the stakes and the expectation of being on the podium consistently to this opportunity of getting to literally just see what we could do. We had, we didn't even know like in terms of like, Oh, on a world stage where Christine and I as a team really should stack up because <laughs> we didn't compete together all that much before. And so it was different. Um, in terms of the pressure and the expectation, there was there wasn't as much pressure and expectation, but it was also uh, it was different than I anticipated and what my expectations of the Olympics would be, hmm. um, just on that personal level of what my goals going into um, that year had been. Yeah, so it was it was it was a very I guess it was a unique circumstance for me. And like I said, right, it's those two weeks. I don't think I could have possibly felt more emotions <laughs> or more a more variance of emotions um yeah and I remember actually like I was I was actually pretty tired just sorting through all those emotions by the time we got to our competition and um I do remember before the first run day one I ended up calling um my mentor Roxanne through Athletes in Action I uh I literally called her during my warm-up <laughs> I was sitting in a stairwell and I was like you know what Um, I just want to, you know, just check in because I want to make sure that, you know, the same heart and the same values that I, you know, wanted to compete with, whether I was competing for that gold medal or whether I was competing, you know, for 10th place, I wanted, I wanted my heart to be in the same place where I was like, no, I'm giving my all. I'm competing for something that's greater than a gold medal. If I get a gold medal, that's gravy, but I want to compete for something bigger and I want to live by, you know, this this character and these values and stuff like that and so it was cool to be able to just 
even <laughs> at the Olympics, literally my warm up to check in with somebody and just be like, hey, can we just take a moment to like celebrate the fact that I'm here and to just check in in terms of like what the bigger picture is. Mm-hmm. It's almost like leaning back or stepping out for a second just to check in and mm-hmm. um, yeah, cause lifting it's, your head up. It's a head game for sure. Yeah. It's a mental game, especially at that level. When you get to the Olympics, it's like everybody who's there is very talented. Yeah. And it's the difference is who can bring it on that day. And so it was, yeah, it's stepping back to be able to just find that mental peace and serenity and Thanksgiving to be able to, you know, compete with, without hindrance or without chains or without, you know, whatever you want to paint that mental picture as just to be able to compete more freely and, um, just be present in that moment, not live in, you know, the what ifs or the I wishes or the, or this may happen or fears or whatever it might be, just to be able to be like, yeah, no, I'm present in this moment. And I, I know I've taken care of what I can and I'm going to continue to just operate in the strengths and the control that I have and uh, go out and see what we can do. Like I said before, we're going to come full circle back to the farming analogy (laughs) from the harvest and the crop that was the Olympics and your experiences from it. What valuable seeds did you take away from that harvest that you wanted to replant Mm -hmm. coming into the next quad? I spent a lot of time after the Olympics actually just Um, giving myself time and space to process things, but also just to enjoy things that I had like given up or sacrificed on the road to the Olympics. So whether that was like spending time with friends or family or doing different activities, Uh, but spending that time also processing like, yeah, what do I, what did I learn from, from that harvest? And what are the seeds that I now actually hold with me and carry with me? And I think one of the biggest, coolest takeaways for me um, was actually at my hometown, welcome home and somebody came up to me and they just talked about like uh, the character and the integrity that I competed with and um, for them to say that to me I was like wow that's really cool that I um, was true to myself was true to those values and stuff like that and um, it was one of those things that I'm like yeah I want to plant that moving forward I want to be able to um, have that be part of my story part of my legacy and part of how I continue to compete I also ask questions in terms of, yeah, what are my new, what are my new goals? What, what do I want to plant with the experience I have and the opportunities I had and the things I learned? And, uh, I did, I spent a lot of time trying to figure that out because as much as there was some really awesome high moments, there was also some really hard things that I had to work through in terms of like, uh, disappointments or hurts, whether that was relationships and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, figure out what does it look like to move forward and what does it look like to set boundaries for myself in sports? What does it look like for me to be able to, um, yeah, move forward and push myself. And I also spent a lot of time sharing my story and being able to like plant those seeds, um, and, and share both the triumphs and the struggles of my journey for other people. That's impactful, super impactful. Mm Mm-hmm. I was really blessed in that I had a lot of opportunities to share my story. I think going into the Olympics, um, one of the coolest things to me about winning a medal is the story you get to share and you get to tell and, and how you can um, yeah, use that medal to, to share something that's greater than just the medal and greater than gold. And uh, I didn't realize how many opportunities I would have um, not being a medalist. And it was cool to be able to be a part of these different events 
and to be able to share my story and to encourage people uh, across Alberta, but even across the country. I got to share um, at a church out in Ontario, even my story. And so uh, being able to share, to be able to have your, your, your life and your story just be a point of inspiration or a point that challenges somebody else I think that's really cool to be able to have just that ripple effect uh, to the people around you to be able to be that seed that you know spurs them on to grow and for me I would say personal growth is one of those things that throughout this whole process and uh, continuing to move forward is something that I really really value Uh, as I met different challenges and hardships it was always okay what does it look like to grow Um, and that obstacles are this opportunity to grow, to learn. And this concept also of like, you can't really rush the growing process. A tree, (laughs) it doesn't look like it's growing, but you come back five, 10 years later and you're like, okay, wow, that thing grew. And the same principle, I believe, applies to our own lives. And so being able to see that in my life as I reflected on not only that season, but the quad and was able to share that with different people. It's something that I'm actually still continuing to like reflect on and work on and be like, okay, so what moving forward? Like, who do I want to be in my sport? Who do I want to be um, just in my community in general? And what are my goals? And post-Olympics, I had decided that I wanted to challenge myself by switching it up and stepping into the pilot seat, actually. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. That's a big switch. (laughs) It is. I did a driving school in 2015 at the end of the season and I loved it I thought it was a lot of fun and uh, it also has this it has this added challenge and it has this it's a complete thrill too because you're flying down the track mentally do you prepare differently being a pilot versus as a brakeman Mm -hmm. yes and no I think actually, so after the Olympics, I decided to step into piloting because I wanted to continue to grow and challenge myself personally. I think one of the coolest things about my Baba's sled experience is how it's challenged me, not only as an athlete, but as an individual, as I've worked through different challenges and problems. And I got to this point too in my sport as much as like there was more to achieve as a brakeman and I could continue to push myself for results. I was also at this point where I'm like, I want a new challenge or a different challenge because the reality was, is I was one of the best in the world at what I did. My form behind the sled was great. And so there was, there was a small part of me that was almost bored with, Mm. with the repetition. And I'm like, I want a new challenge. I want a new frontier. And so following the Olympics, I signed myself up for a driving school in Lake Placid. And we spent three weeks there just crushing runs and learning what is it what does it mean to drive a bobsled and what does it look like and the approach to driving versus braking um it is different braking you're you're all in fully committed every single ounce of energy you can muster up for five seconds okay and the the mental piece behind that is um it is similar and different in that like I got to this point and I think this is the most beautiful point in sports where you get to this point where you don't have to think, you just get to go out and execute and be in the zone. And that's where I was at as a brakeman. I was able to just, you know, go out there and I knew that my body knew what it needed to do. Um, as a pilot now, I have the <laughs> added challenge of like thinking about the whole course and it is a little bit different in that like once you're done pushing, all of a sudden you go from being like super, super high energy, all out, everything you possibly can muster to like 
being like, okay, breathe, finesse, detail. What does it look like to be, you know, half a meter higher, half a meter lower on the track to be half a second, you know, ahead or behind or even less than that. You're, you're dealing with tenths and hundredths of a second. And so I think the mental side of driving, especially in this learning phase, I guess it does parallel a lot that learning, that learning process of what it was like to be a brakeman as I was, you know, as a brakeman, I still visualize what it did look like. What did, what did I want my push to look like? What did Mm -hmm. I want it to feel like? Um, and even actually with my sports psych, because I'm more of a emotional kind of person, we even described like, what would my push like if it was a color hmm. kind of thing, which was fun. Cause I can, I can work in terms of mechanics, but I like also that, that feeling concept of things. And, uh, and now as a pilot, you go through that same process of like, okay, what does it look like to visualize and to feel a track? And what do I want? What do I want it to look like? What do I want it to feel like? When am I doing what? And so it is similar in that, um, you're still focusing on what you can control. Cause if you overthink pushing or if you overthink driving, it's going to go bad. <laughs> um, just the consequences are maybe a little bit higher when you're in the front seat. Um, but yeah, there is still that mental process of like preparing yourself and being intentional with that headspace. For me right now, it's, I love the challenge. I love the thrill. It's, it's, um, yeah, I'm back in that learning space. I'm back growing again. And so I love that. So it's just stimulating you on a different level, really. Yeah, yeah. And I, I would say I'm definitely like, I love learning. I'm, I am a student at heart, I think. And sure. so being able to like, not only challenge my body, but to be able to also challenge my mind with my sport um, is, is something that's really exciting for me. How does this new role as a pilot change your perspective of the sport for you? For me, after the four years of the Olympics, I think I was really tired. I took a lot of time off last summer and I needed it just to like, the reality is, is as humans, right? We're not just physical. We're not just mental. We're, we're emotional, spiritual, mental. Stepping into this new role, I think for me brought um, a different perspective and a new life back into the sport because of the challenge. It was, it was fun again because all of a sudden like you get to see progress and you get to see mastery and you get to see, you know, the fruit of like working hard and being persistent at something. For me, I think it brought that challenge brought a lot of joy back to the sport and uh, I had a lot of fun with it. It was also my first year ever competing on a development circuit because I, when I came in, I stepped right into World Cup. And so it was interesting pr- competing on a different level and the focus of the North America's cup circuit uh it is more of that learning progress growing and there is a different community sense to it than a world cup level where it's like we're competing we're going head to head it's about getting gold it's about you know being the best you can be it's for sure on the North America's cup circuit being the best you can be, but there is that community feeling to it where I want to be the best I can be, but I want to see you grow as well. Whether you're also team Canada or whether you're from the United States of America. I had a girl on um, one of the U S girls in Lake Placid. She lent me, we were, I was in a rented sled that was pretty much like bare bones. And she, she lent me like hose clamps and, and foot pegs for my brakeman. Oh. So, <laughs> so that the ride down was like semi comfortable. Right, yeah. <laughs> so it was cool getting to compete on that circuit. And I had a lot of fun with it. And I think it was interesting too, in that, like, as I was focused on driving, I also fell back in love with pushing because it was this um, niche for me that like it felt like home because it's like it's like riding a bike for me now totally. pushing a sled Familiar. and it was fun because it's like 
as a cumulative piece of driving and pushing as like, how good can I be? How, like how close, you know, can I be to this person or like how much can I see progress? And uh, this year, actually, they also introduced monobob, which is now an Olympic discipline for women for 2022 really? in Beijing. Yeah. So I got to compete in both two women and the monobob event, which is interesting because it's a, it's a very different aspect because all of a sudden you're, you're not competing with your team. You're for sure still working as a team. But when you line up at the line, it's just you. Yeah. So that was a really cool and interesting experience. And I got to actually uh, compete in that in Calgary it was the only race here in North America's cup that they, they had during the regular season. And, uh, I, I somehow won that race. So that was also fun. There you go. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was cool. Cause it's just like this added challenge of driving. Um, it brought a lot of life back into the sport for me and it was about growing again, which I think, you know, if you're not growing, you're dying. So yeah. I mean, like that's a muscle. What you, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like a muscle. It's like, it's like nature. It's right. You see that everywhere around us, if right? You plateau, either, there's atrophy. Exactly. So it was cool that I got to almost like, I guess, in an emotional sense, right? Not atrophy. (laughs) Speaking of muscle, though, from a fitness testing standpoint at the beginning of the season, is the testing different because you are in a different position? The physical testing in terms of like what we measure is not different. Okay. But um, in terms of like what is required... Um, in terms of like maybe what the standards are is slightly different as a brakeman, like everything is riding on that physical performance. Whereas as a pilot, you have two assets, you have, you're pushing hundred percent. It's a two person push, but you also have this added skill of driving. So, um, this year I had the luxury of taking so much time off and it was something mentally I really needed and it didn't hurt my performance in the same way it would have if I was continuing to strictly be a brakeman um, because you have this second asset. So the final piece I wanted to to touch on here was just the dynamic for a two-person bobsled Hmm. and maybe even like a leadership piece. What does that look like between two people? Is there an alpha dog or is it just an equal partnership? And you had touched on it briefly, I think, Mm -hmm. at the beginning of what those expectations look like for each person, um, what they need to bring to the table, yeah, that sort of thing. I would say it varies a lot depending on the team, depending on the strengths and the experiences of the people making up that team. Uh, As a a rookie brakeman, when I was sliding with Kaylee, who's an Olympic veteran, uh, I was very much in a learning role from her. She was very much the leader. Uh, competing with Christine at the Olympics, we were both uh, rookies at the Games. Um, we we had different roles, um, but we were very much like uh, mutual and like um, peers in that relationship. Uh, there's other times where even as a brakeman this past season, I took a break from piloting and that switch to come back to world championships and help out uh, one of my teammates. And it was her first ever world cup and then her first ever world championships. Corey. Corey. And so it was again, this uh, different role where in some instances I was, I was mentoring her um, through, through encouragement or by example. Um, but it was also just like being in this position where um, leadership isn't always you do this or and I'm doing this kind of thing. Often it is empowering other people in their position to be able 
uh, to do their best and succeed. And so in, I would say in, in my experience competing with Corey as she was um, in this rookie position, this is her first ever world championship event in any capacity, uh, that was what my role was. So again, we were equals, but we had different roles going into that. And I think it really depends on yeah what that partnership is, who those people are, how they work as individuals, what they need to perform. And uh, it depend it depends on the relationship and stuff, but I would say very much it's what I've learned in being both a brakeman and a pilot is it's two different roles of equal importance. And what you do in that role might be different um, or the emphasis in that role might be different. But the reality is, is it takes two people to win a bobsled race. In mm-hmm. the four-man competition, it takes four people to win a bobsled Absolutely. race. And so... Um, I think sometimes in our sport, it can feel frustrating in that as a brakeman, our, our position sometimes seems less glorious. You know, the, the team is named after usually the pilot and points are scored by the pilot's name and the brakeman can get changed in and out and all this kind of stuff. And that can be frustrating at times. Uh, but it was something that I think for me was hard, but that I learned as a brakeman was how much of an asset um, it is to be a brakeman and to have um, a, a brakeman that is world-class and their role is different but equally important. Can I get your perspective on how to create more exposure for the sport of bobsledding and just your thoughts on how it's been covered here in North America, but you've also had the opportunity to see its level of exposure all over the world, really. There's so much amateur sport going on around Calgary. I don't know if people realize how much access they have and how much opportunity they have to watch the best of the best compete, but also to try new things. Yeah. And uh, it's really cool being in Calgary because of that culture and because of, um, yeah, that opportunity. It's hard to, I think it's hard to create exposure for our sports because yeah. it's not, um, you don't get prime time, you know? And it's probably, you know, similar questions to even what they're looking at with like the women's hockey league closing, right? It, it's, it's hard to get fans. Mm-hmm. There's not a culture of amateur sport in North America the same. It's really interesting going over to Europe and competing because literally the sides of the track are lined with people and people mm. have their cowbells out. And then on the other hand, they have their, their glue vine or their beer or something like that and their pretzel. And they're there to cheer up bobsled. And it doesn't matter if it's like plus five or minus 15, they're there kind of thing. So it's really cool to be able to um, compete overseas. And it's interesting too, even in the hotel, you're flicking through all these channels that you don't know the language of and you come across Eurosport and they're constantly showcasing amateur sport, which is really cool. So they have a culture of amateur sport and that's what gets people excited about it because they see it and it's also what gets people trying it out. So it's, it's cool in that like going to other countries to see the excitement around it. Unfortunately, in Canada, we don't have the same kind of exposure. And people, I think a lot of people just don't know. And um, it's really unfortunate because it is a really unique event. And here in Calgary, we have so many World Cup events that are literally just in our in our backyard. And we don't even realize it. Mm-hmm. And the best of the best are here to compete. And uh, yeah, so I think part of it is being able to communicate what is already happening and what is already going on. I know they've tried different things around the city, but it's hard to, yeah, it's really hard to build that kind of momentum for it. But it's interesting because, what was it? It was like six or seven years ago where Edmonton hosted 
um, the Red Bull crash dice event. Oh, yeah. And it was so interesting because I'm like, I'm looking at that event and I'm like, it's really not all that different than bobsled. And there was like hundreds of like, I want to say thousands and thousands of people that showed up for this event. And it was crazy. And it was just because of literally the exposure that the event got. It was advertised on bus stops. It was advertised on radio stations and all that kind of stuff. And there was just this buzz of like Red Bull Crash Dice is coming to Edmonton. And so, and people showed up and they stood around in the cold to watch these people fly down a hill on their hockey skates and do jumps and stuff like that and Mm -hmm. whatever. And it was a cool event. I was there, but I was like, this is... It's it's a similar competition yeah. even to like what bobsled is. It's not is. that far off. It's not that far off. And so I think a lot of it's just being able to create that kind of excitement. I have an idea for you. If there were a new track put in place, and obviously I'm not taking money into consideration, mm-hmm. but create an eight-track uh, sliding track, if you will. Hmm. For people to be able to get, get to experience it and stuff. Well fuse like eight tracks together and create it into one super track like a houston highway (laughs) oh and have multiple people go down at once that's the thing have all eight sleds go down at once think about what one of the greatest spectacles on earth is the 100 meter dash in summer olympics yeah everyone the whole world is watching yeah that's where the idea i guess came from was just Mm -hmm. have all the sleds go down at once be insane <laughs> it'd be that would be so intense it would completely change the nature of the sport too that's what i'm saying yeah it would be there'd be a whole different strategy to it yeah um yeah that could create exposure oh it could <laughs> and it could uh, i'm not sure if uh safety wise <laughs> how well, well you might have to, there's a lot of things that would need to happen before yeah we might have would. to get seat belts in the sleds or something <laughs> more than just a helmet we'll have to put roll cages on them <laughs> yeah roll cages would be great <laughs> yeah but that's the thing it's like if you knew that your competitor was right in the lane next to you it'd be different it'd be really interesting as a spectator for sure yeah yeah i think on tv they do a good job sometimes of like they'll track um you know you know how in like swimming events and all that kind of stuff they'll have the line as to like where compared to the fastest sled they are and they'll do that on tv and i remember in korea they were like oh this person took this line versus this sled took that line which was interesting but yeah yeah you wouldn't have to draw it out you You could see it side by side (laughs) and then you'd have photo finishes it would be amazing that'd be intense as we're in this next olympic cycle what are you looking to focus on more piloting a little mono bob potentially (laughs) yeah moving towards the next olympics my goal is to be able to make it to the games as a pilot and i'm not sure if that would be in the mono bob competition the two-man competition and or both um at this point in time, I'm just looking to, to continue to learn and to challenge myself in the sport and to be as competitive as I possibly can be. Um, like we discussed earlier, I was, <laughs> I was born to compete. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so yeah, it's for the me, DNA. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, from those obstacle courses back as a yeah, six year old timed obstacle, courses. timed obstacle courses as a six year old. Yes. I know I'm crazy. I can still remember the first day that I beat my dad at Dutch blitz. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the childhood markers of my life. I'm sure most people don't even care about that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but no, I I want to make sure for me moving in towards the next Olympics, I want to continue to grow as an athlete and uh, continue to compete as a pilot. And for me, I think this Olympic cycle is different than the last. The last one was a lot about learning 
And this one, I want to be a lot more intentional about being able to work in that holistic piece of Melissa and think about, you know, that long-term scope as well. So I'm looking more at things of like, what does it look like um, to be intentional with my emotional health and my mental health and my spiritual health? In addition to, of course, my job obviously demands that physically I be in this space and stuff like that. But looking at what does it look like to take care of myself in those areas that I can be um, a leader and a light in those areas to my teammates, but also just as, as a person and as a role model. It's been really cool working uh, with a team here in Calgary. Uh, I've worked with a number of different coaches and therapists and stuff like that at the CSI, uh, the Canadian Sport Institute over in Windsport, and that's been really cool. And I love that saying where it takes a village or a community to raise a child. And I think it's cool to be able to be a part of the Calgary community and uh, the Alberta community at large and to see how the reason I've been able to do the things I've done, accomplish the things I have accomplished is because of so many people and how they've supported us, um, me, my team in so many different ways. So thank you. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on Story Island. It was a pleasure hearing your story and uh, yeah, good luck in the upcoming season. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reading the Play. For more content, don't forget to hit that subscribe button, and you can also download other episodes at sportcalgary.ca. Be sure to check out the Facebook page, Reading the Play, and to stay up to date on the latest RTP news, including new episodes on the way, make sure to follow on Instagram at Reading the Play, and myself, Jeremy Lee, at Legacy. I really hope there's a piece of Melissa's story that impacts, inspires, and ignites you to help you win your day. And as always, I'll catch you in the next episode.